Welcome to the Painting Lines Podcast, your one-stop shop for all things tennis. Join Eric and Aiden in their discussion for updates on news and pop culture, and from hot takes to betting, they've got you covered. Ready? Set. Welcome back to Painting Lines. Last week, we gave a recap of the Cincinnati Masters, and this week, with the U.S. Open signaling the final Grand Slam of the year, we wanted to kind of look forward into 2024 and really talk about one of the newest initiatives that the ATP Tour is bringing on for that year, which is the new baseline system. Also, before we get started, I just wanted to shout out one of our viewers for suggesting this episode topic. If you guys have any ideas for a topic in the future, feel free to reach out to us at our email, paintinglinespodcast at gmail.com or our Instagram or YouTube. Yeah, yeah. We love it when you guys comment and give us ideas. So big shout out there. I also have another shout out. So we ran some statistics for our podcast and saw that we are the number eight ranked tennis podcast in Ecuador. So shout out everyone in Ecuador listening. Let's try to get top 10 all over here in the US too. All right, let's uh, get into the episode now. So just uh, to kick things off, Eric, do you have any kind of initial thoughts about the concept of baseline pay for players overall? Yeah, I mean, I think it sounds great in theory. I don't know how well it's going to work yet, but I think it's an excellent idea because every other sports league has a union that ensures a minimum salary for their players. And I think this is a step in the right direction for tennis professionals to have their own protections. 100%. Yeah, I think it is definitely a critical thing that's going to be needed in the future just so that they have more security. There were a few big aspects of the plan. The pay then the ranking range, and then the injury aspect, and then another kind of interesting thing we can get into later. But just kicking things off with the pay, the first thing I notice is that it's not in addition to the salary. It just like ensures, as they kind of call it, a baseline. It kind of reminded me of like financial aid for a college. If you need it, it's there for you, but it's not necessarily a massive boost if you already are making enough. Mm -hmm. Do you know if it takes away from other players' prize money? Or like, where is this money coming from? My guess is that it comes from just the ATP Tour. I mean, I'm sure the ATP Tour makes a lot of money, but the press release wasn't super specific. I actually reached out to them with a couple questions. Yeah, I wonder how they're structured if tennis players are considered employees, you know, or if they're like a 1099 independent contractor or what, because... Like I said before, every other professional athlete is essentially an employee, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's actually an interesting point because mm -hmm. I would assume up to this point, they are considered essentially a contractor. They're getting paid for performing yeah. in this tournament versus now, if they were receiving money, they would probably be like an employee of the ATP tour. So it's essentially a salary. I know you said it's not. It's like a need-based salary kind of, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's great because, you know, you've heard all those stories of players just barely scraping by, living out of their cars, eating, you know, ramen noodles. And these are professional athletes. Exactly. And obviously that's not great for their performance. If they're going to be a professional athlete and they're eating terrible and they're sleeping terrible, all these things are taking yeah. away from their performance. But that kind of builds into the, the second aspect of this, which I think is maybe the most important, which is the ranking range. I couldn't find, first off, what exactly it meant to be in their ranking range. Update from future Aiden. I did end up hearing back from the ATP Tour Communications Department, and they informed me that the system will be based on the previous year's ranking. Eric and I went into a little discussion about what we thought the system would be, but after receiving this clarification from them, it meant we can just kind of move along here. So let's jump right back into it. The way it works is if you're in the top 100, 
you're guaranteed 300K a year, top 175, 150K, top 250, 75K. Wow, sweet, dude. We might have to go uh, try to play some professional tennis. <laughs> yeah, just, no, I'm kidding. The thing about it is they said they only predicted like 30 to 45 players would actually need the financial support. And to me, that's because of where they're kind of presenting the ranking range. I was looking at the top 100 players and most of the guys that were within the top 100, I was looking at like 90 through 100, were already at at least like 220, 230K for the year. And they still have three more months of tournaments to make that last little bit. So if the baseline is 300K for those top 100 guys, they may be getting like a thousand bucks if they're at like 299. They're gonna be close to 300K is the thing. I think it might be better if you were really trying to just like help the tennis world and help get more pros onto the scene if you almost like shifted the range there, the top 100 get a guaranteed 250K or something like that. But then you go down and say 250 to 350, get a baseline of 50K. Yeah, spread the range out more so more people are benefiting from it. Exactly, because I think yeah. that's the range where you're seeing the guys living in their cars, eating ramen. When you're between 250 to 500 in the world, those guys are elite level players, but they don't have the level of sponsors. They don't have all this stuff that's helping them stay at the highest level. And so that's where I think they really need that baseline 50K or so to just survive. Mm -hmm. When do they stop the ranking? Is it like a thousand? Or... There is technically no end to the ATP ranking system because it's just based on if you have a point. The bottom ranked player in the world right now, I'm certain just has one point. But if someone else got a point, then all of a sudden they would be ranked, they would just be added to the list. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, and then they're gonna be on that list until that one point would hypothetically age out. Yeah, I wonder how much of these bottom ranked players that are going to benefit from this. Like when we say they're going to benefit, I wonder how much is going to be allocated to their coach and other expenses to the point where they won't even see the money. For those bottom guys that really are needing it, they're probably not gonna really see any money. They're just gonna be able to actually survive probably without any debt, or it's gonna reduce their debt. Right now, they're probably paying their coach, they're paying for their flights, they're paying for their housing, they're paying for all this stuff, their food, and it's an expensive lifestyle. I mean, you have to eat enough to sustain your body. You're working out all day, every day, you're paying this coach. So you have to be able to be compensated for that. And if you're not getting the results that you really are hoping for, and you're not moving up the rankings as fast. I'm sure there are guys that burn out and maybe could have been better pros, mm -hmm. but couldn't sustain just the lifestyle and the payments that were required for it. Yeah, I just want to be clear. I'm for this idea, but I am going to play devil's advocate here and kind of bring up that age old question, which is these players aren't generating any revenue for the ATP, right? Like, so why should they be compensated? It's kind of like the whole gender disparity in sports, you know, women's sports, unfortunately, don't bring in the amount of money or fanfare that male sports do, right? Look at the WNBA versus the NBA. But I think new this year, the Women's World Cup team, the Women's US team made the same amount of money as the men for the first time ever, despite not making nearly as much money. Generating as much revenue. Generating as much money. So what do you think? Do you think it's fair to take away from other players who are actually generating revenue? I think the distinct difference 
with that analogy in terms of the women's players don't have the possibility of contributing to the tour in the future. Because if you look at a guy that's in the top 500 men's players and he needs this money to play for a few years and then all of a sudden he gets his breakout, let's say 27, like Chris Eubanks or something, all of a sudden he's in the top 50. But what if he couldn't make it there because he wasn't making enough money to survive and play the game? So I think for this, it's more of like a stability for someone to maybe help them generate revenue in the future and be a draw in the future versus for the women. It's the women don't have any impact on how the men generate revenue. If you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. And yeah, that was honestly a great response to, to the question. Also, I think, I know they pay, you know, very well, these tournaments, but I think the bulk of the income comes from sponsorships anyway. Like I'm pretty sure Federer is damn near a billionaire if he's not already but i think he benefited the most from you know life outside of tennis because he was the face of tennis for two decades and he's got rolex nike or had nike he's got the new on cloud brand that he's a investor in so i feel like if you can make it there obviously not everyone's going to make it to fetter status but if you can make it in the top 50 I think you have a great chance of living a very, you know, lucrative lifestyle with sponsorships, not just tournament pay. Yeah. And that's where like marketability is mm -hmm. critical. I mean, I actually saw an ad today for Prudential or something like that. And yeah. it was an ad with Ethan Quinn in it. Wow. Good for him. So it's like, if you have that marketability as a player, then you can get the, the ads and the sponsorships that are going to pay you. And you don't even necessarily have to have done a ton at the professional level yeah well totally unrelated i'm in new york city and i'm walking around obviously it's the us open right now and all these shops are putting on their you know tennis line display and lululemon's i guess influencer or brand ambassador is jack sock so jack socks all over the lululemon store but he just retired from tennis yeah he's moving to pickleball apparently i know geez so following the sam query route so is it gonna yeah geez someone someone said this the other day and i think it resonates that pickleball is a game it's not a sport yeah i mean i don't want to harp too much on pickleball <laughs> i know go back it's... to the episode where we talked about pickleball yeah exactly exactly <laughs> but you're going back to the plan the next thing that I think is critical is their injury protection aspect. So it's a similar tiered aspect. You get 200K, 100K or 50K on, in those same distribution areas, top 100, top 175, top 250 for if you were injured and you play less than nine ATP tour or challenger level tourneys for the year, then you're gonna get this pay to help you deal with this while you're injured. And I think that's critical because there are guys that I think deal with injuries and show up to tournaments just because they need to make the money. Mm -hmm. You show up to a tournament and you maybe know that you're not going to play at your highest level. And if you're not going to play at your highest level, you're probably not going to win, but you have to play because you have to make the money. Mm -hmm. So guys like FAA, I mean, hasn't performed that great this year, keeps showing up losing in the first round, but he's still making money from just playing in these tournaments. So if you have this injury protection plan, maybe he can actually take the time off to recover, knowing that I have this baseline that I can survive on while I'm recovering. Mm -hmm. That could get tricky though, huh? 100%, yeah. I mean, that was like my first thought when I looked at it is like, could it become exploited? Could players be like, you know, I've only played in six tournaments this year so far and 
oh, I don't know, maybe I want to do this and they'll play exactly nine and then mm-hmm. shut it down for the year. So yeah. it could get a little bit iffy on that, but the hope is that if you can trust your players to be honest. At the end of the day, these are professional athletes. They, you know, this is their job. This is what they do. Hopefully they like it and don't want to exploit the system and fake injuries so they don't have to play. I think a lot of these players have the integrity to not do that. Yeah. I mean, it kind of builds into the next thing. Like this last thing is this newcomer investment. You get a 200K investment in a player if they break into the top 125 for the first time. I think this could be exploited in terms of like some guy knows he's going to break into the top 125 and he says to the other guy, hey man, like I, I'm if I break into the top 125, they pay me 200K, like, but just be a match fixing at that point. So I, I guess you have to assume they're not going to do that. Yeah, you do. You do. Because I think the penalty for something like that, if you're caught, is banned for life. Oh, right? 100%. You know, 100%. As it should. That just takes away from the good nature of the sport. I think that is an aspect of it. Like, if you think of it that way, like, these guys probably are not going to take any sort of risk that could be construed as cheating. The ATP Tour is going to be... I'm assuming strict on how they pay out these funds. For sure. I'm, you know, you can't be like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a little sore today. I'm going to count that. I'm injured. Exactly. You know, I'm sure they'll have a doctor and, you know, some kind of evaluation. It should be a pretty objective too. It shouldn't be. But then again, you know, you don't know someone's body like they do. Yeah. I mean, like there's also things where you can't necessarily even see it in a scan or in a, an examination. Like if someone has a muscle injury, sometimes that's not super obvious to an outside person, but the player knows, oh, I can't bend my leg effectively. I can't push off as hard as I'm used to. Like they know something's up. So it's exactly mm-hmm. like they're going to be examining it, but there's also going to be a level of trusting the players, I'm sure. Another interesting thing I just thought of is whether or not the injury was caused by you know, tennis related injury. Like what if someone was out partying and they fell down and tripped and broke their leg? You know, they shouldn't get compensated for that. That's definitely a thing in like other sports like the NFL, the NBA. I know that a lot of the times the players have in their contracts, you can't get injured if you're doing like a non aspect of that sport. So yeah, I think that would be an interesting part of it, but it's also weird because for tennis players, it's like you just play in a tournament and then you go off and do your own thing and then you come back and you play this tournament. And so I think it's really gonna be tough to prove that it didn't happen in practice. Cause like, if you look at like an NFL practice or an NBA practice, like most of those things are like film. You're going to know, okay, this guy got injured in practice. People aren't watching every single tennis practice a guy has. If he shows up in, to a tournament and says, Hey, my hip's injured and says I, it happened in practice. No one's going to be able to prove that it didn't happen in practice. Yeah, no. All right. Overall though. I mean, sounds like a great idea. So they're doing a trial period right now. It's going to be 2024 to 2026 is going to be a proof of concept, essentially. Make sure it works, show how the positives are, show the negatives. But so yeah, overall, now that we've kind of delved deeper into it, I just want to like want to go back and just go over the overall positives and negatives, in my opinion. Positives, I think the injury aspect is good, as long as it's not exploited, obviously. I think it would be great to have that aspect so that players can recover and not be afraid if I don't play in these tournaments, I'm not going to be able to survive. The positive, I think that the 175 to 250 range is going to benefit massively in terms of just confidence and security in their job. Like there is always the the aspect of, oh, it's good to be that hungry wolf. Like I have to win this match because I won't be able to like eat later if I don't. But that's also a massive negative. You're not going to be able to play confident tennis if you're afraid of not having the money to 
pay your coach or something like that. Yeah, we're just not even well fed or like good night sleep. Yeah, exactly. I, I won't have a place to sleep tonight if I don't win. Mm -hmm. Like that'd be that's not a good situation to be in. And the negative I think is just the range. I think if they expanded it, it would be much better to a lower range, like 350, 500, even just helping them out a little bit. How many of the players, as I described, how many of the players in the top 100 are actually going to be impacted by this versus how many guys between 250 and 500 would be impacted by even a small base pay? Yeah, maybe they just don't have the money for it right now. You know, like you said, this is a trial run, so they're going to try it, see if it works or not, and then hopefully they'll expand it come 2026. Yeah, exactly. That'd be that'd be great. But overall, yeah, I think it's I think it's a great plan to to have this just for the stability of the players. Yeah, no, me too. I I agree. But yeah, before we hop into segments, I just wanted to bring up one kind of unrelated comment because obviously the US Open just started and Djokovic won his first round match and he took back the number 1 rankings. So Djokovic will be the number 1 no matter what happens in the rest of the tournament. But to me, this kind of brings up the idea of like did Alcaraz deserve to be the number one or is it kind of like the team US Open where there's a COVID sh shadow over it until maybe Djokovic retires or he passes him later? Because last year, Djokovic got zero points for Wimbledon and then he had to sit out Canada, Cincinnati and the US Open. And then this year he couldn't play in the Sunshine Double. So if he'd even gotten like okay results in Canada, Cincinnati and the US Open last year, and if he'd gotten points for Wimbledon, there's no way that Alcaraz would have actually passed him and gotten to number one at that point. And he probably would have held on to it and not lost it going through this year. Yeah, that is a loaded question. You're digging deep here. I mean, I could see both sides. You know, to say Alcaraz didn't deserve the number one ranking is, I don't think that does him justice. I think, you know, as long as you go out and do what he did with the circumstances that he was in, he deserves being number one. But let me take a step back. So he deserves to be number one because of the circumstance. But I think if Djokovic was there, he would have been number one, like you said. But that doesn't take away from Alcaraz deserving it or not. I think um, he still battled. He still played his heart out. He just didn't get the chance to play against Djokovic. Yeah, maybe deserved isn't the right word because he did deserve. And I, I think what it boils down to is just kind of the the whole life isn't fair aspect. It wasn't fair that Djokovic really got no points for Wimbledon. And it probably wasn't fair, especially considering he's allowed in this year, that he didn't get to play in those tournaments last year. Yeah, I mean, another thing I just kind of thought of off the top of my head is, okay, so the big three, right? Djokovic is now kind of the undisputed GOAT just because of statistics, but he came onto the scene later than Federer and Nadal. He didn't have to put up with like up and coming Nadal and prime Federer. So did he deserve to be the best out of the GOAT out of the big three? Or is that just he's a victim of circumstance, kind of like how Alcaraz is right now? I think it's a little different in that aspect because it's not like they were forced to sit out. I don't know, man. It's hard to say. I, I'm very curious to 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 hear what the listeners think too. Hundred percent, yeah. Because this, you know, this is why we do this for, you know, healthy discourse. Exactly. Well, people, people are going to bring good points to the table. No need to uh, make a decision right now. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, I think I think Alcaraz will get the number one ranking eventually, mm -hmm. and then the discussion will disappear. 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the grand scheme of things. Already you ready to uh, hop into segments? Yeah, let's do it. So what I saw, what's new in tennis this week is Eubanks is starting to enjoy his newfound stardom, you know, after his phenomenal year, his Wimbledon run, he's starting to get recognized out in the streets. He's getting, you know, on Good Morning America, he's getting free tickets to Hamilton. So he says he's enjoying it. I'm glad to see him you know, finally coming into, you know, his own. And this is the first U.S. Open where he'll actually be seated. And I think that means a lot being an American player. So good for you, Banks. Enjoy that celebrity status while you got it. Love to see it. Yeah, very cool for him. And especially when you're at 27, even more than a guy where they come onto the scene at 20 and they're like, oh, I never expected this. But it's like when you've been a pro for a while, you maybe really never expect it. And then all of a sudden you come into your own exactly like you said, and you start winning matches, you start performing better. And all of a sudden you are the star and you're like, two years ago, if you told me this, like, yeah. I would expect it. Yeah, it's just that late bloomer who hit puberty a little later. Exactly. All right, what, do you, what did you see this week? Mine is a kind of a funny thing that I saw for all my F1 fans out there. Lance Stroll was talking about making a shift to tennis. He's like 24 years old. He's a professional Formula One driver. And I saw this rumor come out that, oh, he's considering leaving F1 and going to tennis. And to me, it's just absolutely insane. Just such a ridiculous thing to say. I mean, already he's an incredible athlete to, to be performing in Formula One, but like it's completely different. You can't just make that shift unless you're Michael Jordan and you're going from basketball to baseball. But it's just a different level. Like it's just kind of a crazy thing that I saw. And I was like, this is pretty insane. That is wild. I mean, the confidence on this guy. Wow. Exactly. He's got a ton of hubris. But well, we don't know if he had a background in tennis. Like for all we know, he could be it could be his second favorite sport that he, you know, puts a lot of time into. Yeah, but and I mean have pretty good fundamentals. If you're least. a professional athlete in one thing, you have to be spending most of your time on that. And to be even at like an okay level mm -hmm. of tennis, you would have to be d dedicating all the time you're spending on that to tennis. Yeah, that might be a little insulting to players who work their whole lives to, you know, be Exactly. No, there are guys I'm sure that are ranked like like 900 in the world that are like, yeah. this is insane. This guy doesn't even know what he's saying. Mm -hmm. And not to take anything away from, you know, baseball with Michael Jordan or even Tim Tebow. I don't know what background Tim Tebow had in baseball, but he played professional football. It unfortunately didn't work out. Also, you got to check out that doc on Netflix about the University of Florida and the Swamp 2000s. Kings. Yes, it is awesome. Yeah, I watched the Johnny football one. It was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. What a crazy, crazy guy. But he also went to baseball. But I feel like tennis is a lot more nuanced than baseball, right? Yeah, I mean, everyone says like, oh, the hardest thing in sports is to hit a baseball coming at you 90 miles an hour. But that's one aspect like that's your entire job is essentially to just be able to hit that baseball so it may be the yeah. hardest thing but you can dedicate all your time to it yeah no one ever brings up in that conversation the hardest thing in a sport is say returning a serve from john isn't like tennis just kind of gets slept on there 100 percent. but it's like you have to be able to return well you have to be able to serve well you have to be able to hit forehand to control it to go up the line go cross court you have to be able to slice well you have to be able to move well you have to be able to anticipate there's so many things in tennis that you have to be able to focus on so even mm -hmm. if like one of those things isn't necessarily the hardest thing to do being able to do all of them makes it 
like one of the toughest sports out there. Oh, and how about the mental side of it too? Exactly. Being able to handle the pressure when you're down two sets to love, when you're up two sets to love, all these things, it's just so much pressure on you mentally and you'll be able to be so composed. It's something you really have to spend all of your life really doing to be able to play at the level that these professionals do. Yeah. How about when fans pretend to be bees and buzz in your ear while you're trying to serve? Yeah, exactly. And then you're like, <laughs> okay, it's time to get that person thrown out. Yeah, definitely. All right. We have a big betting week. The next two weeks are going to be big betting weeks. Who are you Who are you going to take this week? I'm taking a guy that I was harsh on in some of our early episodes, but I'm taking over another guy that I have not been the friendliest to in terms of my uh, predictions. I'm taking team plus 105 over Shelton. I'm going team because he had a big win in the first round. I think he's finally regaining that confidence that he was missing. And I think Shelton's going to feel a bit of the pressure. Like, He's in the second round of a grant of the U.S. Open, not just a Grand Slam, but the U.S. Open, which is a home Grand Slam, and it's I think a, a bigger Grand Slam just in general than the Australian Open. And not to go based on the past only, but Shelton hasn't won two matches in a row at the tour level in a while. So I'd be a little shocked if Shelton got the win, but I mean, in the end, he's a great player and team's a great player too. So I think it'll be a good match to watch. Yeah, there's some nice value there too. Exactly. Team being the underdog. Uh-huh. I saw this too, and I, I couldn't pick one. You know, I love both players. It's one of those where I just want to see good tennis. So uh, my bet of the week is actually a parlay. So, Ooh. Or, yeah, I know. Pretty interesting. Spicing it up over here. So I have Jer over Gaston at minus 220, and then Eubanks over Bonzi at minus 230. But with the parlay, the odds come out to plus 109. So I like that. You know, I'm taking two heavy favorites and getting positive odds. Yeah. All right. Let's get into some match of the week. Okay. My match of the week was an incredible one. Dimitrov beats Molkan 6-7-6-7-6-1-7-5-7-6. I mean, you can just tell based on the scoreline that this was an incredibly tight match. It was just back and forth. I mean, obviously, Dimitrov goes down first two sets and he loses two tiebreaks, and they were both close tiebreaks. I mean, the first one, I think, was 11-9 or something like that, something ridiculous. And then comes back, and he's like, I'm not losing in the first round. 6-1. Then in the second one, he it's much closer, takes it in 7-5. And then that last one, both of the guys had match points. I think some of them were break match points, but both of them had chances to maybe win the match. And in the end, Dimitrov got it done, which... I think is kind of a little bit where Dimitrov does have that experience in these tense situations in the highest tournaments, like these Grand Slams, Molkan maybe a little bit less. And I think that's where Dimitrov's experience kind of shows. Yeah. Wow. How long was that match? I don't remember the exact time, but it lasted a while. I know it probably uh, pushed back some matches on the court. Oh, after. for sure. I, yeah, because I remember I bet on Hercoc today, and he was supposed to be playing at 2.30, and I was at work just refreshing the U.S. Open website to try to track it live, and it didn't start, I think, till 4.30. I was like, what is going on here? I thought it was a rain delay or something. I didn't even uh, see. What about you? What's your uh, match of the week? All right, so my match of the week was Fusevich beating Korda 7-6-4-6-7-6-4-6-6-4. Can I say something? That was actually going to be my match of the week until I saw this <laughs> this one today. 
Oh, wow. So this is pretty interesting because you know how I don't like to bet against American players, especially yeah. Corda. I love Corda. But for some reason, uh, maybe it was because I was bored at work. I just saw the value and saw at the end of the fourth set, Fusija, the odds were plus 195. So decided to spice the day up a little bit, took him and... I just was doing the same thing where I was refreshing the US Open website because I wasn't watching. I was just watching the the live updates and it was just going back and forth, back and forth. And it got to the point where I think Fusevich was broken by Korda and I just kind of lost interest. I'm like, all right, well, there it is. There's the match. And I actually didn't notice or I didn't know that he won until this morning when I went on my phone to place a bet and saw like, oh, congratulations. <laughs> you won <laughs> that's your crazy. And, and I saw Pusichip won. And I'm like, whoa, let's go. Talk about a good start to the morning. Yeah, that's real nice. Big win. Yeah. I know, big win. All right, and that's the show. If you're not already subscribed, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. You can find us on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube at Painting Lines Podcast. Feel free to shoot us a DM or email us any questions or thoughts at paintinglinespodcast at gmail.com.